My name is Ben Burgess. Uh, this is Give Them an Argument. Uh, the uh, voices you just heard were from uh, three years ago uh, at the uh, Democratic Socialists of America uh, convention in 2017. I was a delegate then. Uh, I still remember that's one of the times that I most joyfully felt like part of a global political project. Uh, when there was somebody from the British Labor Party who got up to speak at the uh, DSA convention and this room full of American socialists burst into the Oh Jeremy Corbyn uh, song. Of course, as anybody watching or listening to this uh, knows, uh, last week uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, was suspended from the Labor Party uh, for the, uh, the sin of reacting to uh, a report on anti-Semitism in the Labor Party under his tenure by saying, of course, anti-Semitism is horrible. Of course, there have been failures that, have that have been addressed. Of course, one anti-Semite in the party is too much, but also accusations of anti-Semitism have been wildly exaggerated. The prevalence of anti-Semitism within the Labor Party has been wildly exaggerated for political purposes. Now, of course, everybody knows that this is true. Uh, very few people, you know, maybe some casual newspaper readers really do believe that there was more anti-Semitism in the Labour Party under Corbyn than there's been than there was before Corbyn, uh, or that there's more anti-Semitism in the Labour Party under Corbyn than there was in the Tories or other political parties in the UK. Uh, but certainly nobody in the media class believes that. If anything in politics deserves the label of gaslighting, this is it. Uh, and Remember, not to go all too coke fallacy here, but uh, Tony Blair is still a, uh, an elder statesman in the Labor Party. Uh, some pretty damning reports have come out about the lies that he told to, uh, to lead the, uh, the British public, or at least the part of it that he was able to convince to support the invasion of Iraq, of which he was one of the major co-conspirators. Uh, he's pushed back against that, and that's been fine. But Jeremy Corbyn responding to this report on labor anti-Semitism uh, by saying, in part, this obviously true thing that this was a politicized accusation that was made for factional purposes, uh, apparently disparaging the boot is a bootable offense, and he was booted for it. Uh, this is uh, this is not shocking, perhaps, uh, but this is uh, this is extremely disturbing. This is one of a series of terrible defeats. Uh, that uh, that the left, not just in the U.S., obviously, uh, not even just in the U.S. and the U.K., has endured uh, this year. It hasn't all been defeats. Um, there was very good news uh, in in Bolivia, of course, uh, with the defeat of the coup plotters there uh, and the return to power of Evo Morales's MAS Movement for Socialism Party uh, in Chile with the uh, defeat of uh, Pinochet's constitution. Uh, but the overall trend uh, has uh, been very, very bad. Uh, and one of part of the mission statement of the show is to be real about that, uh, not to uh, not to pretend that everything is fine, uh, but to understand that we have been ground into the heel of this series of political defeats um, and to try to uh, to make the best of it and regroup. Uh, this is why I'm always saying don't get too uh, caught up in the uh, ins and outs of the daily news cycle, read Marx, drink whiskey, develop a taste for country music. Uh, you're going to need it for the long haul here. But on the subject of the long haul, I'm about to be speaking to uh, Greg Belvedere, uh, who's the author of a piece in Current Affairs that, among other things, is about uh, forming worker cooperatives. Uh, so that 
is central to the long-term goals that we care about here at Give Them an Argument, workers' control of uh, the means of production. Uh, after that, uh, in about 15 minutes, uh, I am uh, going to be talking uh, to um, Matt Leck, uh, Katie Halper, uh, Zishan Alim, and um, and also uh, Jacobin uh, contributing editor Luke Savage uh, about um, about the election, uh, which uh, by uh, by the time uh, you're watching this on YouTube or listening to it as a podcast is going to be one day away. So obviously that is going to be on everybody's mind. And then of course at the end we have outlaws and revolutionaries uh, with the the great David Griscom. Uh, but right now I am uh, joined. Uh, by um, by Greg Belvedere, uh, who is the author of a piece in Current Affairs uh, that um, that was was published not very long ago, uh, so a little over a month ago, uh, called Debt Strike: Employee-Owned Businesses and Other Surprisingly Simple Tech Fixes, uh, which uh, which is a fun title. Uh, so there you go. Hi Ben, how's it going? <laughs> it's pretty good. How are you? Good. How am I coming through? Not too loud, not too quiet. Nope. You're, you're golden. Cool. So, um, so, so Greg, uh, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit, uh, I mean, I guess I, I do want to do want to hone in pretty quickly, you know, in the limited amount of time we have to talk today about the part about worker co-ops, but, uh, tell me a, a, just a little bit about this article and the impetus for it. Um, it was a couple of years ago when Toys R Us, uh, went bankrupt. And I, you know, kind of lamented the fact that this happened because it didn't happen because Toys R Us was mismanaged. It happened because Bain Capital, a private equity company, took it over and basically did what uh, happened in the restaurant scene in Goodfellas. They, you know, ran up, uh, you know, they, they paid themselves huge bonuses on the, uh, on the business's credit. And, you know, they just you know, torch the place when they left and, you know, the workers who, <laughs> the workers who, um, you know, lost their jobs and, you know, as a parent now there's no more like big toy store chains, even though, you know, people want them. And so I started thinking like, well, what can we actually do about this? Because it seems kind of crazy um, that, you know, first that these things can get wrecked and we can't really do anything about it. Um, and so I started thinking about this and started thinking, well, you know, we, we have all these GoFundMes for, you know, people who need medical, uh, you know, need to pay their medical bills. But what if we could crowdfund actually buying the means of production? Now that's, you know, some problems with it because, you know, you are paying to, you know, you win your, you know, like buy your freedom in certain certain right. But I think it has a lot of potential. Um, and I think the place to start would be to would be with a company that has gone bankrupt because it's it's something that nobody's looking at. It seems like lo the low hanging fruit. And this is something that in the past, uh, both Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders have advocated. You know, giving the the right of first sale uh, to workers if a business is goes bankrupt or the company or the owner wants to sell it. But I mean going with the theme of not being too tied into the uh, current electoral system, you know, maybe we don't wait for that. Maybe we find a way to do that without that. And, you know, it presents challenges, but I think it's challenges that we need to start thinking about people who are a bit more keyed into uh, both the organizing aspect and the technical aspect. Um, 
really needed to start thinking about how we could pull this off. Um, you know, there's questions about how do you democratically organize people that are that dispersed um, and still have it actually be effective. Yeah, uh, and so so I was thinking about this. I actually uh, did a debate uh, last year with this libertarian economist, Gene Epstein, uh, and um, and and in a way, this is what he was pushing. He was saying, "Hey, look, you want workers-controlled means of production? Great. So just you know, you don't you don't need to violate anybody's property rights. You don't need to uh, do anything political. Just um, you know, just do." Um, you know, just just do this kind of thing, right? You know, like like just just do this sort of GoFundMe kind of enterprise to uh, to start you know to start up cooperative businesses or or to buy out uh, businesses uh, to help employees buy you know buy them out, and uh, for a variety of reasons, right? You know, I mean, I, I don't I don't think that's a um, you know that's a total uh, that's a total solution. Uh, I think that as with your your analogy with the uh, the manumission. Of slaves, uh, they, they, you know, there was quite a bit of that right before the Civil War. Uh, you know, that's that's something that there would be um, abolitionist groups that would do. Uh, but of course, you know, you you were never going to get the entire slaveholding class to just sell off all their slaves into freedom, uh, because that was the uh, that was the basis uh, of their their lifestyle, right? You know, is is that they were existing off of uh, off of slave labor and they had no desire to fix that. But it does seem like there are some reasons why, even if even if you think that uh, that this is never going to be a complete solution, that you're never going to get, you know, it's never going to be the case where like uh, you just have an entire private sector that has just become worker-owned through um, some combination of what you're talking about and co-ops out competing other kinds of businesses. Uh, there are probably some structural built-in advantages that uh, that traditional businesses have uh, in that competition. But even if you think all that, it would still be really useful, right? Like like if if instead of if instead of having to tell people, oh yeah, now you could actually absolutely have worker-controlled businesses and it would work just fine, no problem. Uh, instead of having to say, well, let's see, uh, you know about the Basque region in Spain? You know, there's uh, there's a big co-op there. If you could say, hey, you know, Toys R Us. Exactly, exactly. And, and these things, they keep happening. That's the other thing. Like, it's not new. Um, just this past week, uh, the musical instrument retailer Guitar Center also, you know, run into the ground by Bain Capital, in addition to a, at least one or two other private equity companies, looks like it's about to, uh, you know, file for bankruptcy. Um, and so these things keep popping up. And I, I think, I think you're right. I think it's one thing to, I mean, I'm drinking a I'm drinking a new Belgian beer right here. It's a worker-owned uh, cooperative. But, you know, we can point to some of these things, but the more of them you can point to, the more proof of concept, and not just in terms of seeing the actual product, but this would be an instance where you would actually um, expose more people to the process of actually creating and transforming um, these businesses. And I think that would be valuable in and of itself, in, in and of itself, even though it's obviously just a step, um, uh, you know. Um, and yeah, yeah. I, I, I think actually New Belgium uh, was uh, entirely owned by the Employee Stock Ownership Program, uh, but, uh, but I think they actually sold to a larger company, so you you can't. Um, I mean, check this, right? Make sure, make sure that's right. But I, I so I think it's actually uh, can't feel too bad. I think everybody involved is rich now. But uh, but I, I think that uh, I believe New Belgium 
uh, is no longer work her own, but, but I, uh, which, which is a shame because I, I, I like to do the same thing if I was doing like a video about uh, yeah. worker ownership, I'd like have uh, like a, a flat tire as a prop, you know, but, uh, uh, but, um, but that said, uh, I think that it, it is useful that you brought it up because this is actually also a distinction that's, that's worth making uh, because in an environment where just like regular hierarchical businesses are, are the norm, it's what everybody's used to, uh, then even when you do get cases where, where you have a company that's wholly owned by, by something like an ESOP, an employee stock ownership program, uh, it's it's they generally will just bring in a traditional board of directors and and it'll just be run um, like a regular company. Whereas if this was being done, I think the way you're suggesting, kind of as a as an ideological project, uh, that uh, that people would be have like political motivations for uh, uh, for donating to the the GoFundMe to turn in this hypothetical right Toys R Us. Uh, in, into a co-op, then then could actually go all the way and actually run it as a co-op, like Mondragon or something. I mean, we we would hope. Um, I mean, you know, melding the ideology to a project like that is you know obviously of course lots of reasons. Um, but you know, I think there's a lot of potential. Uh, the the other thing that I've been thinking about, um, and I think a lot of people are thinking about, is uh, like a rideshare service like Uber. And, um, you know, if they uh, have some more bad rulings and if this prop doesn't go well for them in California, they might just look at, it, you know, what's going on and say, you know what, this isn't our business model. Let's get out of this. And they might, who knows, they, maybe they'd want to sell it for a song. And that is something where you would be more, I think there is, would be more investment in the drivers actually owning it. Um, I think you could maybe rally that rally people around that a little more. Um, again, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, there's, there's lots of questions. I feel like at the very least, this is an idea. I want to get more brains on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that it's, it's also, it, it's also good. And I, and I take it, this is the, this is some of the point that you're making in, uh, in the article. Uh, I like, you know, I don't know if you wrote the headline, but uh, but whoever did uh, the, uh, I, I like the phrase, other surprisingly simple tech fixes, right? Because this is not usually the sort of thing we're talking about when we use phrases like simple, uh, yeah. simple tech fixes. Uh, but I, I think that, I think that one really nice thing about it, I mean, maybe this just sounds obvious, is just that this is, this is so doable, right? Like, uh, like, especially in a period of, of very deep defeats, uh, this this is this is something that that we could that we can totally do. I mean, you, th you think about um, you think about the amount of money that was being poured, for example, into the Bernie Sanders campaign from small dollar donations. Uh, you know that that actually added up to being an absolutely enormous amount of money. Uh, and if you could get a significant fraction of that uh, to to a project like this, you could actually do this, even for like I mean, certainly for. Um, you know, I mean, there are right now, you know, during the pandemic, right there, there have been all sorts of little GoFundMe's to, you know, to save the the bar at the street corner or whatever, uh, just in its in its current form. Uh, and so it, it's certainly not hard to imagine that you could get maybe even something the size of Toys R Us or certainly, you know, certainly something in between that and a corner bar uh, that you could have. Uh, there are there are places, you know, there are places, uh, you know, that are 
small to mid-sized businesses where you have where uh, where the union is like a the union that actually represents the workers there is like a, a local of the IWW right that exists and so it's not impossible to imagine a place like that uh where where they would like really go for this right you know that this that this would be like oh yeah totally let's let's do the the crowdfunding in order to buy the place up to convert it into a full-scale democratic uh worker cooperative and it wouldn't um and and i mean this is this is totally within the financial resources of the left right now yeah i mean it doesn't seem if you i mean it just i did some like you know back of the napkin calculations and even with uber for example i mean that's kind of a big one but um but even something like that big um you know doing just some really simple like quick math even with its absurd valuation um okay let's say you know you you lower that a little bit i i, I you know i'm not i freak, i forget the exact numbers um i had them in the original draft of the article but I mean, we're talking a couple hundred dollars per employee, which unfortunately a lot of Uber drivers might not have. But if you have a good crowdfunding campaign and you say, you know what, you donate to this campaign and you get 10% off your first ride or something like that, you, you, people like, you know, go for it. If you, if you combine that kind of, uh, that kind of deal and that, that kind of ideological, like, um, you know, solidarity with, with the workers who could actually own a piece of this thing. Now, how yeah. you structure everything and after that is, you know, questions and, and you know, to be answered with someone with a little more knowledge uh, in detail. Yeah, but you, but you could, um, you know, but, it, but it's something that could happen and it, would, and it would be both immediately beneficial for the lives of the people who work at these places, uh, that they would get that extra, you know, dignity, autonomy and money. Uh, and uh, and also it would be it would be an incredibly useful prop, right? You know, for for future arguments about this stuff. That like, look, this is not, you know, this is not pie in the sky. Uh, I don't, you know, and of course, you know, I don't need to explain to you uh, where, um, like, oh, hey, here's this like, uh, here's this place that you've never thought about, but you know, but trust me, right? This this exists there, right? You know, this the if you could say, hey, you've gotten a ride on Uber, right? This is how yeah. this already works. That would be that would be so much better for that argument. Yeah, and I'm I'm a big fan of um, Marshall McLuhan had this idea. It was called the the spectrum of effects, and you you don't exactly know what a technology is going to inspire in people once they get the idea. And his classic example is the printing press and how the printing press, according to him, at least I'm you know, uh, it, it kind of it almost followed that you would get interchangeable parts for production after that, because, well, I, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like one of those things that once one idea is out there, it leads to other things. And so I think this is the type of thing that it's very doable, but it could also lead to people saying, well, we can do this. Maybe we could do this, or maybe we could adapt this to a different type of business. And with some tweaks, it could work in lots of different fields and, you know, it's, I, I think it's a, a project that could really go if we could kind of get past some of the initial questions and things like that. Like who's, you know, who's, how are you going to pay for the initial site for the crowdfunding, for example, and how are you going to make the process democratic and transparent, but also effective because those things don't always work. Wow. You're, especially if you're 
have masses of people spread out throughout the country. There's difficulty there. But again, like you were saying, like a, a, a mid-sized business might even be a, a better place to start that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you know, I, I think that, uh, I think that there are, um, you know, competitive, like, I think that it's probably not, I don't know how, um, you know, how big a percentage of the economy, this sort of strategy could, could possibly grab. I mean, to some extent, that's, that's just an empirical question you'd have to find out, but, uh, uh, but I, I, and, you know, and of course there's certainly a, uh, there, there are some built-in problems, uh, for, for co-ops, you know, competing, uh, in a capitalist economy, uh, be, you know, because, uh, with, with deeper pocketed, uh, co competitors, uh, but if, uh, if you're trying to make an argument about viability, uh, for the sake of the future, when you're, you're maybe proposing, you know, expropriation of things, you know, to, to turn them into, some sort of democratic uh, arrangement, uh, it would be really good to have this proof of concept. So I think it's a great idea. Everybody should uh, should read the article, which uh, which is again, uh, debt strike employee owned businesses and other surprisingly simple tech fixes uh, by Greg Belvedere. Uh, Greg, is there anything else you've been working on or anything you want to plug before you go? Um, you know, I have a YouTube channel, Rebel Base. I'm not. I'm kind of on an almost permanent hiatus right now because of COVID and. Uh, basically being a stay-at-home parent right now mm. um so it might be a while before i uh before i add anything to that but i do have some cool stuff up there about eco-socialism and technology and uh you know more spiritual stuff and a whole bunch of stuff some some of the content i think i'm very proud of others um you know you know how that is <laughs> sure. fair enough all right thanks man i really appreciate you coming by thank you for having me ben Now joined uh, by um, Jacobin's uh, Luke Savage, uh, Matt Leck, uh, who uh, Real Heads will know was the uh, the very first guest on the first episode, uh, the great Katie Halper, uh, who uh, needs no introduction, uh, and uh, Zishan Alim, uh, who uh, some people, if, uh, if, if that name rings a bell and you're not quite sure why, it's because you might have read him a few days ago in, uh, in the New York Times uh, where he had an op-ed about, um, about what socialists uh, in his view should, should do in, in the general election and how they should approach that. So, um, so Jishan, you want to uh, 
well, first of all, nice to meet you. Welcome to the show. Uh, do you, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, so do you want to you want to talk about just about that op-ed for just a minute? Sure. Yeah. Um, I there's a lot of ideas in there, so I'm not going to go kind of into into all of it. But basically, what inspired me to write the column was to sort of respond to what I viewed as um, you know, in certain quarters of the left, um, you know, hesitation or ambivalence or what could be characterized as some degree of of, of self-loathing about having to cast a ballot for a man who, you know, sort of is his perfect avatar, the status quo. And um, even among people who were arguing uh, for voting uh, for Biden, a lot of times people have argued to narrow to swing states. Ben, I know you've been advocating that kind of view. Yep. And, um, or, or, or just sort of hesitation about whether or not it should be done in the, in, in the first place. And so, uh, yeah, I, 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 I have the swing state position and I have, and since I live in a swing state, I did vote for Biden, but I've got tons of self-loathing about it. So <laughs> yeah. tell me why I shouldn't. So yeah, so I mean, basically, I, I, so what I try to argue in this poem is that from a strategic standpoint, I think there's, there's really not so much of a need for, for, for feeling bad about oneself while doing this. And that from a strategic standpoint, that, 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 that socialists should mobilize unapologetically in every state um, cast their ballots for Biden and not, not feel that they're compromising or betraying their principles, but rather uh, advancing the cause of socialism uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and, and so one thing I, I've sort of tried to seek to do uh, in, in this piece is try to conceptualize how the left should think about voting in a way that moves away from understanding as a purely individualistic act. So as I cite there, you know, um, a lot of people have said this, I cite the example of Crystal Ball, uh, a very sharp left-wing commentator, saying that after Sanders dropped out of the primaries, that, uh, you know, it would be up to former Sanders supporters to decide whether or not they want to hold their nose and cast out for Biden, and whether or not, and that that choice was a personal one that's up to them on an individual level, and that she wouldn't judge or shame them. And for me, I think that is, has ironically a little bit of a whiff of bourgeois liberalism to it. And there's two reasons for that. The reason I say that is because I think it conceives of, uh, of, of, of voting as an act of expression of self on an individualistic level and uh, maybe an, and, and a function of taste and moral status. Uh, when I think that really voting should be viewed as one instrument for altering uh, the, the, the balance of power in society between capital and labor, between elites and marginalized people. And another way of thinking about it is the fact that I think that, uh, you know, it's not really the way that the left derives power to sort of say, let's split up and view this as an individual personal decision. The left derives meaning and power from collective action, from decision making through debate uh, on a group level and then deciding to ha act as blocks. Now, there's always room for pluralism and people going different ways, but there's a few, you know, in our binary two party system. There's only a, you know, basically a few options. And I think out of the options of not voting, voting third party, uh, voting for Biden, or I guess potentially for an accelerate, a hardcore acceleration is voting for Trump. I think the one that will bear the most fruit for the left is voting for Biden. And so once you come to that conclusion, if, again, if you, if you buy the argument, then I think there's no reason to feel, uh, uh, to, to, to feel dirtied by that process. And, and, and so there's all kinds of reasons for it. For me, a lot, the way I think about it is, is basically seeking out a political terrain that's most conducive to change. 
So if it's Trump is reelected, you're playing defense. You have to defend things like the Affordable Care Act, which is an embarrassment to any civilized country. You know, it's a barbaric private uh, sort of insurance plan that's overly deferential to you know corporate interests. But if, if you have Biden in power and, and, and you can pursue, you can be on offense and pursue Medicare for all. Uh, with Trump, there will be an all out assault on, on the planet. Uh, Biden has shown, signaled on some level that he's open to some of the ambition of the Green New Deal. Uh, Trump will appoint a more increasingly radical uh, sort of handmaid's tale uh, Supreme Court. And Biden could balance out uh, th those things ideologically uh, and make sure that no left-wing policy is rendered legally impossible. Um, so, so, so let's, yeah, so let, let's talk about that because I buy most of that argument, right? I mean, I, I, I agree with, with Crystal, who, um, who, was a, who was a guest a couple episodes ago. Uh, I agree with her that, um, that, you know, look, scolding people for, for not agreeing with your tactical calls is, is probably uh, the single get out the vote strategy that's least likely to work. Uh, and uh, for a variety of reasons, right, that's, that's a role I'm unwilling to play. So I, I agree with her there. But the distinction I've tried to make is that I will argue for, for the, the tactics that make sense to me, right? I, I will make that case to people uh, for, for why they, they should do that. Uh, I, but I think there, there are two issues, right? One is, um, I, I think you probably are more optimistic than I am, certainly at least, and, and we can get the rest of the panel in on this in a little bit, uh, about, about what will happen under a Biden presidency. I think that there are certain kinds of assaults uh, on, uh, on working people and, and marginalized groups that, that won't happen under a Biden presidency that would happen under a Trump presidency. I'm a lot less optimistic that like any good stuff about uh, climate, for example, that might be on a campaign website uh, is actually going to happen. Uh, and then, uh, and then the other thing, uh, just on a basic level, is that I've never completely understood the argument for thinking that it's it's important uh, in in all fifty states, right? So, so I I think that um, if if you're going to, um, you know, if you're in Michigan, if you're if you're in Wisconsin, certainly if you're in Pennsylvania, you know, Florida, then I think there's like a really straightforward argument because the electoral college exists, uh, and uh, the votes of the left could actually be enough to to make a difference. Uh, if you are voting in California, uh, then. It seems to me, right, maybe, maybe you can, can give me your perspective on this, why you disagree. It seems to me that you're basically making a symbolic statement one way or the other, right? Because, uh, of course, if you were going to vote the way you want everybody to vote, uh, then you'd vote for Howie Hawkins or somebody because you'd actually prefer everybody to vote for them. And uh, so, so uh, Howie would become president. Uh, but if you're going to just sort of factor in okay, most people aren't going to vote the way we would most want them to. And then we, the left has to interact with that, right? People, this smaller group of people who are like Biden third party swing voters, like what we should do, we should just, we should just factor in whatever everybody else is going to do. Then I would think, okay, uh, well, if every Biden Hawkins swing voter voted for Hawkins and convinced five of their friends to, Biden would still get the electoral votes from California. Uh, and so it seems to me that at that point you're making a symbolic statement one way or the other, and uh, the symbolic, you know, and if I was in that position, if I was going to make a symbolic statement, 
I would make uh, a different symbolic statement than than voting for uh, for for than voting for Biden. So so what's the argument? Is is it going to be is the is the popular vote majority going to be somehow helpful in a Trump tries to steal the election scenario? If so, how? Or or is there some other reason why it's important to, in your view, to vote for Biden in safe states? Um, I think that there's there's a there's a few different reasons. I argue that it's it's not um, one is just a sort of practical consideration. The fact that a lot of what motivates Americans in the scheme of affluent democracies have very low voter participation rate, and what people are voted to vote for more than any other kind of candidate is presidential candidates. Um, a lot of people don't follow local politics. A lot of people are not um, that that sort of as invested. And a lot of people may not be, particularly when they're very busy, motivated to go out for an attorney general position. So if one has a clear-eyed sense of the the utility from a left-wing perspective of having a, a, the you know Biden in office and understanding that you can tap into what political scientists call the coattail effect, which is that when you have someone higher up on the ballot, that it can drive turnout for people who are down ballot. And that actually impacts the left in a, more, on, in a more tangible way because in most states, there are people who are, there are Democrats who are more progressive and some are even socialists uh, operating at the state level, operating in the, uh, on, on the municipal or city council level, uh, attorney generals and so on. Uh, in my column, I linked to DSA uh, backed candidates across all kinds of offices in, in, in every state. And um, those, all, all those races, you know, some of those races are not that competitive and some of them are competitive. Um, and so that's advantageous for the left to have those people there and to have legislatures just generally tilting to the left. And more of those people you can have in office, the higher the odds are that you can enact progressive legislation or build, develop left-wing blocks that have, uh, can have a pretty substantial effect uh, on, on the authoring of bills and what kind of policies are enacted. Uh, and, and the other issue is, and this applies more in swing states and national states, but I just think that just from, again, from a practical perspective, not making people feel ashamed or burdened or like they're reneging on their, on their responsibilities as a socialist when they vote for Biden, the margin by which Biden wins in tighter states does matter from the perspective of whether, if this election is going to be stolen or tampered with, uh, through the mail-in ballot process, right? We already so, know that, that, but that, that's but that's a state-level argument, right? That they have a yeah. that, like it's it's not that the national vote margin yeah. is going to make a difference because because right. uh, it doesn't really seem like it would. Yeah, no. So basically, on that second point, what I'd say is that's still an argument. That's still arguably you could still say that falls completely within the purview of a state uh, swing state-based argument. But I genuinely think, though, that. Uh, because of the way that message, you know, not everyone's extremely online, not everyone's views on these things are constantly evolving. I want to expand the way that people think about what it means to vote on the left and to not look at it through the prism of one's hands are dirty through this process and to look at it from a practical and utilitarian lens. And I think that can bleed over into other things. The reality is that if you're having a national conversation about the fact that it's not a horrible thing and that you're not a true leftist if you vote for Biden, that does affect voting in states that are maybe closer than we would think. Or it could tip, tip things in states that we thought weren't in play but could be in play, like Texas, for example. And so I think that just taking, I think that because I don't think it's, it's high cost to vote for Biden, but there are payoffs, I would rather just explain why I think people should conceptualize it that way and sort of move away from this aesthetic argument of feeling that you're stained as an individual, which we don't apply, by the way, when we do things like 
buy food or clothing or pay taxes with with entities that we don't respect ideally it wouldn't be the case right but we don't all live on communes where we make our own food and our own clothing we do we do exist in a world where we are complicit in systems that are unjust and exploitative and and unethical and i think if we can be clear-eyed about the utility of voting then we don't have to feel uh to to sort of self-defeatingly feel uh sort of ashamed of it yeah i i do have some thoughts about that i want to follow up but first i'd like to to get some other people in on this so um so, so Katie, I think that uh, I think that I have a better idea uh, with with uh, both Luke and Matt. Uh, so, so, so why don't you come in here? What where is your head at right now about all of this? Sure. Yeah, and I just had uh, Professor Professor Noam Chomsky, who had a somewhat similar argument, I would say. Um, and I, I mean, what's interesting is that this is the first um, election where I've been somewhat convinced by the argument that a popular vote. Um, difference or the, the differential in the popular vote could be significant because of the, you know, the aesthetics of, of the election, I think, could determine how much kind of cred Trump has if he does try to steal it. Um, I think, you know, if it's close, it'll be easier for him to say, look at how close the vote was, um, even though last time, of course, he didn't win the popular vote. But as we all know, one of Trump's major, like, weapons is that he doesn't have to be consistent at all. Um, not to do the other Republicans, actually, look at Mitch McConnell. But anyway, he especially doesn't have to uh, have any consistency or principles. Um, I do think that it's interesting and it's ironic because in a weird way, the people who are the most, there is, I think you're right, some, some bourgeois liberal fetishization of the vote that you see with some people. And it was really clear when I was talking to Chomsky how much like, he's like, yeah, of course, this is what we do. But the votes voting barely matters like we, that's not the same thing as democracy and the irony is that liberals and liberalism really does kind of fetishize the vote as the ultimate expression of democracy so, so you have this kind of seemingly inverse relationship between people's respect of the vote mm -hmm. and um and um urgency of it right yes yeah. um and there's a lot of symbolism built into it and um you know I, one thing I, I do think, though, is that um, when you were talking about the down ballot votes, that's something that would be um, determined by people who are non-voters versus Biden voters. But but like third party voters could also be casting those down ballots, too. Right. So you were just comparing non-voters to Biden voters. Uh, yeah, third party could. I guess my argument is basically that there's a lot of people who if you weren't are not gonna be motivated to go out at all unless if, unless they have a sort of clear sense that Biden's gonna go because Howie Hawkins is not like a po popular candidate in the US basically. Oh, right. It's, Although, it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of a, just a political science-y take on what's likely to get people out of the voting booth. Right. Maybe you could argue that that's not convincing. I, I'd be well, no, because I'm just thinking that there are people who wouldn't vote for anyone, but I mean, I, I don't know the numbers, but I, I think that part of some people would not vote for anyone, but Howie Hawkins, let's say, and those people would vote probably very progressively on other issues and down ballot. Uh, yeah, I mean, my 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 understanding is that in 2016 in Michigan and Wisconsin, I mean, this was some of the Malika Jabali uh, reporting after the election. Uh, there were quite a few people who, um, you know, they didn't vote for Jill Stein. Probably they didn't know who she was, but uh, right. but they they just left the very top part of their ballot right. blank and and voted for a bunch of offices yeah. under it because they just you know couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
anecdotally, so, Cori Bush has brought that up when I asked her about that. Mm -hmm. She said that she's encountered people who would vote down ballot, but not um, mm -hmm. presidential. Anyway, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess, I guess to me, and and look, I mean, I care, I care much more about um, about the voting for Biden uh, in, uh, in, in, safe, in swing states part uh, than about, about whatever people do in, uh, in safe states where arguably whatever you do at the top of the ballot as a leftist is kind of a, a gesture uh, anyway. Uh, but but I, I do think that uh, there's, there's, something, there's something healthy about the fact that so many people uh, don't wanna do that, right? Yeah. Like, 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 like I, th I think it reflects a good realization on their part about uh, about the two party system, about the Democrats, you know that they that like the anger that they're feeling that's that's channeled into that is is reasonable, right? And and so I'm not sure how far I want to go in uh, in the direction of of discouraging that. And it's and I think that there's also something that's good about um, about just not being uh, reflexively you know identified with the uh, the Democratic uh, Party uh, because. You know, like what I would like to happen is for for Biden to win on Tuesday, and then uh, for him to get uh, no honeymoon whatsoever from anybody to the left of him, and and for people to immediately pivot to uh, to, to extreme opposition. You know, uh, and and I think that um, I think that's consistent with with voting for him, especially where in the places where there's tactically the most reason to vote for him in kind of the same way that lots of French socialists and communists voted for Macron in the second round of their, their election uh, to keep out uh, Marie Le Pen, you know, the, the neo-fascist. Um, but uh, I think that the more you have kind of positive feelings uh, about, uh, about Biden or, or you don't want to be too critical of him, you know, leading up to the election because you're worried that being too critical, you know, might lead people not to vote for him, et cetera. The more you adopt that stance, the harder it is to, to make that pivot because there's always something, right? Like there's always, you know, before you know it, it'll be the 2022 midterms and, oh, are you, are you really criticizing Biden now? And we're about to have this really important, you know, midterm election and, you know, there's always something. But um, uh, from, uh, uh, from Points North, uh, Luke, what do you think? Um, I find these debates very difficult to extricate from kind of other debates. Uh, whenever, whenever these conversations come up about should you vote third party, should leftists vote for the Democratic nominee, etc., I think it's very difficult to extricate that from the kind of periodic debates about whether it's permissible to have an identity in American politics that isn't vote blue no matter what uh, and mm -hmm. things like that. Credit to Zeeshan, I confess I haven't read the article, I'll read it after we uh, record and credit to you for um, you know thinking this through and trying to schematize it, which I think is usually not the case when people have this uh, argument. I mean, for me, of course, the, uh, you know, Ben's already alluded to this when he introduced me. I mean, it's an abstract question because I mean, I won't be voting for Biden, but that's because uh, I'm not an American citizen. In fact, I'm not legally, uh, uh, legally entitled to to vote, um, uh, but so yeah, I find I find the uh, I find the debate uh, you know abstract for a variety of reasons. Of you know, be, uh, and, you know, the, I was alluding to some of these before. You know, the periodic kind of uh, shaming of 
Nader voters, you know, this absurd demonization of Susan Sarandon, of all people, that's big, you know, like a sort of incredibly bizarre meme that sounds like a joke until you interact with certain parts of Twitter and you see that it really isn't. And people do have this incredibly strange animus. Um, I mean, mean, Luke, I mean, I understand you're not an American citizen, but if, if you... If you went around like Flint and Detroit and Milwaukee, exactly. you would understand that in these Rust Belt swing states, people just do what Susan Sarandon yeah, tells them to do. She was the game changer. She was the game changer. Yeah, that's right. And right. And and so actually, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because I mean, I another reason these debates feel um, and this is not a knock on the piece uh, Zishan wrote at all, but um, you know, I, I think another reason why these debates feel sometimes a little bit extraneous to me is I'm not convinced that. Uh, I mean, these actually strike me as very kind of navel-gazing intra-leftist debates. They may be they may be useful exercises, but I I don't think that you know swing voters uh, or rather third-party voters are not the reason Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election. Um, and one of the reasons this debate recurs so often is because there is uh, you know there has been a very strong effort on the part of you know particular liberal commentators, especially uh, you know to argue that that's what you know. That's what that's what caused it. Uh, I will say just so that I can say one useful or constructive thing here, rather than just shrugging off the debate, which is a little evasive on my part. I think that if uh, you know, I, I obviously I, I agree with the general point that you know Biden winning is clearly the better outcome, right? It's clearly the better outcome for the left. Um, I, I think my uh, my friendly amendment to that is I would like at minimum uh, if people are going to. Uh, you know, celebrate the possibility of a of a democratic victory. Let's be honest about what that means. Something that uh, I has perplexed and frustrated me since uh, the end of the primary has been this uh, you know discourse among particular small p progressive and liberal commentators that's really tried to make the case that hey, you know, you're not going to get everything you want if you were a Bernie Sanders supporter, but Biden's going to be a he's going to be the most progressive president ever. Yeah, Look right. at his platform. Look at the stuff on his website. Um there's a kind of weird only Nixon could go to China sort of thing that gets applied uh sometimes where you hear well Biden because Biden is actually this lifelong conservative or you know moderate in the you know in the parlance of the professional commentariat um actually that's a reason why he he could actually do medicare for all or maybe right. the public option he could do the green new deal and i'm unclear why that would be the case it seems to me Biden has told us again and again and again not just throughout his nearly 50 years in public life but during this campaign in the last you know 50 weeks in the last 50 days he has told us again and again he is not a friend of the left he will actively celebrate uh, and and boast about getting endorsements from Rick Snyder the multimillionaire former GOP governor who engineered the Flint water crisis he will boast about that um, and uh, he will distance himself from Bernie Sanders who is actively campaigning for him and potentially uh, bringing in, you know, large, you know, constituencies that would not be enthusiastic about voting for Biden uh, otherwise, unless Bernie Sanders was campaigning for him. Uh, we know who Joe Biden is going to, you know, we know who he is. So I think at baseline, uh, from a kind of strategic and a tactical perspective going forward, if there is a Biden presidency, uh, from day one, we should be honest about what a Biden-Harris administration is, what it represents, who who it represents, and who it doesn't represent. And uh, even if we, you know, uh, hope for a certain outcome, uh, let's be clear on what it actually means. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's right. Uh, and I mean, look, in general, my view is that um, 
anything that like universally anybody bernie right anything a politician has only started talking about within two years of their running for an office they're not going to do right like that's 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 my that's my baseline like rule of thumb for that uh and and it is instructive to remember um you know, that when uh, Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, he was for a public option against an individual mandate. Uh, he, he was for card check. Uh, and uh, the reason a lot of that stuff didn't happen, actually, in his case, probably even more than with, with Biden, who actually has had several decades to show us his preferences, uh, is, is not necessarily that he would have hated any of those things if they'd happened, but that structurally, um, actually getting any of them done would involve... Uh, political confrontations uh, with the donor class that would have had real consequences and you just didn't have a lot of incentive. Maybe you could make an argument that the left is so much stronger now that it would be different. I'm not convinced of that. Uh, but but just to push back against the thing, the navel gazing thing a little bit, yeah. I, I guess the reason that, that I don't entirely think that is that it's certainly... Um, it's certainly true that third party voters were not the primary reason that Hillary Clinton lost. In fact, I don't even think that's in the top 10. Uh, but it's also true that the, uh, that the Jill Stein vote in several states was bigger than the gap uh, between, between Trump and Clinton. And I think that that election was so close in general that there are lots of things that don't make it onto the top 10 list that if they'd gone different, uh, the slightest wind could have been different and Hillary Clinton would have won Wisconsin, you know, for example. Uh, so, and it's the part that we have some control over, uh, even if it's, even if it's not the main determinant thing, it's the, it, it is the, it is the thing that we, that we can influence in ways that we can't influence other determinant things. And I guess part of the reason that I feel differently about this than I used to, I mean, I'll, I'll put this out there. I, I voted for, um, I voted for Nader twice. Uh, the first vote I ever cast was for Ralph Nader in 2000. Uh, I, I voted uh, for uh, Cynthia McKinney when she was the Green Party nominee in 2012. Uh, and I voted for, um, uh, for Jill Stein uh, twice. Uh, the, um, you know, the, the late Michael Brooks used to give me shit about this, you know, when, when I told him. Uh, but, uh, you know, I uh, I was never considering voting for Hillary Clinton. I was thinking about voting for a third party candidate because Stein was annoying me so much towards the end of it. But then John Oliver did the, uh, the his hit on her at the end and that annoyed me enough that I went back and voted for her anyway. Uh, and part of the reason why I feel differently this time, besides the stuff that I usually stress about uh, appointments to the National Labor Relations Board and, and everything else that you can bring up, uh, is that... If you're just talking, and I guess this goes back to Zishan's point, right? Because if you're just talking about individual votes, then yeah, okay, who cares, right? I mean, there's, there's a like 0.0000001% chance that uh, any individual vote, that it would actually come down to a two vote uh, difference uh, and uh, in any state. Uh, and, and if you're talking about all voters, hey, what we'd prefer all voters to would be to vote for a third party candidate if we if we were thinking about it that way. Um, so, so who the we is that we want to vote differently, I think was less clear to me then, but it seems like now there's a more easily identifiable we, that there is, there is this re-emergent left uh, that, that is an identifiable block of votes that, that could be enough to make a difference, which is why I think that it does matter to uh, a certain extent. But uh, but I want to get Matt in on this uh, before before we switch gears because I know Matt has thoughts. 
Yeah, I mean, my general take has been that I advocate people give Biden their vote, but not their voice or their labor. Because I mean, kind of what we all know about the Democratic Party, like upset and uh, impatience with them is welcome at this point. But I don't welcome the idea that we're going, I think the Green Party stuff and like the third party stuff is frankly looking for a ballot cheat code that is going to actually substitute for the actual work that we have to do. And I think we need to nip those conversations in the bud, frankly. And that's, I think that's the real point about like when Chomsky says voting is 10 minutes, it's like there is massive hurdles. But in terms of once you've decided to be illusioned, you're not, you're no longer disillusioned, you're illusioned to that so one of your actions can do something on voting day, then I think we need to be like, subject that to scrutiny. And I, I like the emphasis on not feeling um, ashamed about voting for Biden, because frankly, I am against voter shaming. And I think the Green Party does an awful lot of it. I think blaming people who have decided to go lesser of two evils in our system is a massive voter shaming operation. So I mean, that'd be my final point about that. No, I mean, that's no doubt about that, right? I mean, there is, there is tons, uh, there is, there is tons of, of voter shame in, uh, in, uh, in, in that direction. And I, and I think there's an over-moralization of voting that, uh, that comes, I mean, one, just thinking about it the wrong way, right? Like this is like a special prize that we're giving out to the person that we really like that, you know, they'll have the honor of my vote as opposed to, you know, the cheesy Halloween season uh, metaphors that I always use, like, you know, somebody's, uh, you know, jigsaw or somebody is giving you a choice between going through two rooms, both of them, there's gonna be somebody who's trying to try to kill you. Uh, what do you do? Well, you, you go into the room where you think you and your friends have a better chance of surviving, that's the one you pick. Uh, and it'd be weird to moralize that decision and say, oh my God, I can't believe that you chose to empower that room with the thing that was going to try to kill you. <laughs> uh, right. So, so, so I, I definitely take, uh, I definitely take your point about that, but, um, but maybe to, to switch gears. Uh, Can I just add one thing yeah. before we switch gears? Mm -hmm. Sorry. I think that's true Please. that there is voter shaming. I think it's a little, it's different because one, one of the sides has like the entire democratic party behind it and media behind it. Like, you know, echoing said voter shaming against third party or non-party or non-voters. I do find the, you don't get it, you're a neoliberal shill discourse a little bit annoying. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I also think that just to be clear, you know, no one, the left, we should not at all celebrate like Biden's victory. It is the, it is the second to worst outcome that could happen. <laughs> like this is bad news no matter what. It's just that now we're gonna have someone who maybe we can push more. And I do think that, I think that we, here's where I'm optimistic. I mean, I'm pessimistic that Biden would ever do anything on his own without facing insurmountable pressure. But I'm optimistic that having Sanders, having Biden lose to Sanders will create this expectation gap. And I think Sanders did create a kind of sense of, um, not entitlement, but in the bad sense of the word, the way that phrase is usually used, but like righteous entitlement, that these things are rights that we deserve and we need to grab them and fight for them. And there's nothing, um, there's nothing fringe about them. There's nothing like too out there about them ahead of their time. They're just normal rights that everyone should have. So that gives me some optimism because Obama did not, did not was, you know, did not defeat a right winger particularly. I mean, he beat Hillary, but it's not like he, um, he didn't do what, what, Biden did in terms of, you know, defeat this great hope that could have actually moved things to the left. So I'm hoping that that like disconnect and that anger will create pressure. And also like what, what Crystal said, I, it's true, but we need to, as the left, make it so that if we don't vote, 
that that has consequences. That's the problem. It's like, I mean, with Brianna Joy Gray and, and um, Chomsky's debate, it is like, yeah, we should make it so that our vote matters uh, and that a protest vote could actually force the uh, the nominee to do something. The problem was we don't have that. So it just becomes ineffective. Like if, if our saying we're not gonna vote for Biden had meant that Biden adopted um, Medicare for all, then I'd be all for it. We just haven't organized enough. Yeah, right. I, I think that's a really important point, right? Because because if you actually, we actually were in a situation where, you know, voting third party or mass non-voting could have some great payoff, uh, then I could see saying, all right, maybe tell sometimes there are situations where it's great risk, but also great reward, and maybe right. you should do that. Um, you know, my problem, my problem with the the Brianna Joy Gray and Virgil Texas argument there from bad faith is that it, I, I just don't see what the payoff is. Uh, you know, certainly in terms of uh, like, this isn't the argument they were making, but sometimes people say, oh well by having slightly more people vote for the Green Party, for example, in this election, you're gonna create some momentum that's gonna to lead to, I don't know, 10, elect 10 cycles down the road right. or something, they'll actually be competing for power. Uh, but historically, I mean, that just doesn't seem to be the way that works. If, if we ever did get a new electorally viable major party in the United States, it seems like it would happen the way that the Republicans emerged out of the Whigs. There'd be some like organic process where maybe yeah. one of the existing parties collapsed and the new party came into being as a major party or the people's really, party the people's community. yeah yeah totally right like but it, it doesn't these are both cases where these things started out as mass parties they didn't they didn't start out as two percent of the vote party and somehow build their way up to that there's really not a lot of historical precedent there and then if you can make the leverage case then i guess i want to know how much would need that would need to be for that leverage to be exercised because it kind of seems like we've run this experiment a bunch of times I, I know you want to get on the station. Oh yeah, I just want to add one point just to piggyback off uh, the last few points, which I agree with entirely. I think just, I think that it's so important to remember that the percentage of people who actually vote in any given election, election is so incredibly low um, that a lot of times threatening to not vote when you are a left-wing voter, just there's a hard, it's not easy to distinguish between a non-voter and a, uh, a left-wing voter who is skeptical of voting altogether. And that I, one argument I made in, in my piece also was that a lot of this is also about socializing the left to think about voting as part of the repertoire of actions in general so that you become an actual constituency that has leverage over the party where people don't people actually worry about not getting your vote or worry about the idea of an organized boycott. The problem with, you know, one of the problems I have with what Gray was arguing is that there's no mechanism, there's no clear way in which to like organize this group of voters and then to simultaneously abstain from something and after something in exchange. The left is unfortunately too, too, you know, anemic or nascent, however you want to look at it in the scheme of the history of the left, uh, to be able to pull something like that off. And so I think that thinking in an organized fashion about voting and becoming an actual constituency makes you more dangerous. And then you can actually play some harder games later on, but right now it's not a real threat. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, actually, I remember, well, I remember, you said it like half an hour ago, uh, that, uh, you know, you said, uh, you know, you, you kind of made that analogy about, uh, about buying products at the grocery store. Uh, and, and I think that the way I think that's the telling one for this thing about boycotts because something I've always found incredibly annoying about a certain kind of liberal is that they'll they'll say things like, oh, I, I'm not going to buy that. I'm boycotting brand X. 
I always want to yell, it's not what a, it's not what a boycott means, right? You know, like you're, you're just individually not buying it, right? A boycott is, an, is a tactic that involves organization and, uh, and there has to be some like mechanism, you know, like, like if you look at like the Montgomery bus boycott or things like that for like kind of policing community involvement, you know, to make sure everybody was, was doing it. Like they're like, individuals making individual consumer choices quietly is not a boycott and unfortunately with voting right now if you were going to say oh we're going to play that kind of game you know that we're going to say oh we're not, we're not going to vote for you until our demands are met um you'd have to have a big organized block that somehow was moving as a block for that to be effective as opposed to just kind of hoping that it was clear that a bunch of people's atomized decisions added up to that Right, which um, we should aspire towards doing. Totally, yeah. Um, but meanwhile, in terms of what's actually going to happen, Katie was kind of raising the issue of uh, of the the long term good effects, maybe of the Bernie Sanders runs, and what that would mean. Presumably, this is the scenario where where Biden does win, right? So, right. so it it seems like, as far as I can tell, roughly, you know, there are like three or four things that could happen at this point um what i understand from uh the uh my high school fun fact uh, my high school classmate nate silver uh is uh that uh uh who i'm not in touch with but reading his tweets you know i, I did go to high school with him uh we actually were both on the uh east lansing high school debate team for one year uh, but uh um but from from what i understand from his tweets at least uh there um you know, nice guy, annoying centrist political views. Uh, there, uh, Biden right now is ahead in Pennsylvania, but the margin is not quite enough to mean that there's no suspense at all about what happens on Tuesday. Uh, Trump could still win. Uh, that there are ways that Biden, Biden has passed a victory that don't involve Pennsylvania, but if he lost Pennsylvania, that's like the most plausible way for Trump to win. So presumably if Trump won, we're not gonna find out um, on Tuesday, that like Trump winning, I assume, um, would involve some scenario whereby we have like weeks or months of arguing about, you know, which ballots are counted and it's incredibly tight. And, you know, eventually we find out that Trump won, or maybe we find out that Biden won, but, you know, Trump can use his shiny new 6 3 uh, Supreme Court to install him anyway, a la Bush v. Gore. So that's one thing that could happen. Another thing that could happen is it could be really tight. Uh, on election day, but then eventually Biden wins anyway. Uh, and then a third thing that could happen is that he wins Pennsylvania and elsewhere by big enough margins that we just find out on election day and and that's it, right? Then, then you know, he won. Uh, you know, you can very briefly celebrate and then and then pivot to uh, to organizing against the the Biden administration. Uh, so. I guess, you know, Katie already talked a little bit about the, the Biden wins two of those scenarios, at least how that might play out in the long run and why we might be in a better position than, uh, than the left would be in previous Democratic administrations. Uh, but what about just, just, just for fun, just for a minute, right? Like, what about the, the Trump wins scenario? Like, um, do, um, how, uh, how apocalyptic do people think that would actually be or wouldn't be?
I mean, there's the argument that now that he has not, if Trump were to win, you know, he'd have no no kind of breaks on him because he wouldn't have to win a second term, right? So he could go full out. We could see the real un, unfiltered Trump. Um, I don't know why my tendency is to kind of see it as not, this is based on nothing, honestly, but I feel like he would, it would be kind of status quo of how horrible it is now. Although I will say like the rate, the, the kind of proud boy stuff, um, the signaling of proud boys, I think that's going to, that is kind of a game changer, um, from, from even what we've seen so far with Trump. Um, yeah, Matt, did you want to get in on this? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to. I mean, a mandate for him would be horrible. I think it really depends on the Senate, really, right? If the Democrats take back the Senate, I think we're. I think hopefully they'd be able to stymie him. I mean, the problem with the Democrats and a reason to put them into power is that you can't trust them as opposition against these people yeah. for like the worst impulses of the Republican Party. Um, so I think, I mean, it would be super horrible. But I think just the way the election is working now, generally. I mean, they'd have a stronger majority of the House, I would still think. I mean, it's hard thinking of what exactly the scenario looks like. But I think Congress, I mean, hopefully we can get Pelosi and Schumer out of there if that's the case. But I mean, yeah, I think it'd be pretty horrible. And I think the thing that would really suck about it is it's not going to hurt these establishment Democrats. They're going to fundraise like crazy for yeah, another four years. It. Yeah. No, I also want one thing I want to say is that I, kind, I also almost fear that a tr Trump staying in power would make war more likely, but not because of Trump. I feel like the Dems, as you just said, Matt, are so despicably unprincipled, opportunistic, and have some real, like, I don't know if it's Trump derangement syndrome or it's rational self-interest, but they are such hawks. And the way that they push the Russiagate stuff, I'm, I mean, that, that scares me, like, more than Trump himself, militarily speaking. So, okay, so well, well, how about that, right? So, um, if in the um, uh, in the in the Biden win scenario, right? Like, like I think I think we all think that that would certainly be better for for the position of the left. That 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 Biden would be, um, you know, a better choice of enemy for us, right? Which I think is language used in, in Zishan's op-ed. Uh, uh, that certainly, you know, certainly that he's not going, you know, Biden represents a ruling class strategy that's not that doesn't involve doing things like aggressively trying to stamp out what's left of public sector unions for example uh like like, like trump does so that would be better uh but i think that the one um the one place uh you know where, where you could you could make an argument um you know i mean like you could make a make a pro-trump harm reduction argument maybe even right i wouldn't right but you know but i think i think some people might try to would be on uh, the foreign policy end that uh, that there there was speculation, for example, that uh, uh, that uh, that that Hillary Clinton uh, would uh, would have escalated, you know, U.S. actions in Syria more than Trump did, um, and it's not, you know, even though as hard as this is to remember during the Obama era, like one of the big Republican talking points about Obama was that he was too soft on Russia. Uh, now that uh, Democrats have spent four years working themselves into a lather about Russia, uh, you know, you, you could plausibly worry that, that in the Biden administration, uh, there, there would be uh, attempts to escalate what was going on in different spots around the world where there are, where there are tensions between the U.S. and Russia, you know, uh, Ukraine, certainly, you know, probably other places. 
uh, and and that 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 would actually be be worse. I mean, I I would be curious anybody who wants to get in on this, uh, like how seriously you would take those worries. One thing I and I think those are all valid concerns. One thing I just generally look on is breaking up continuity of power between these parties is probably a good thing. Like we just heard a story about uh, meeting at Doral about invading ben- Venezuela. Um, I think that came out recently, and God knows how many other types of plans they have in. And I just think like like switching part. I, I I mean the example I'm that's in my head is Bay of Pigs, right? Because Nixon planned Bay of Pigs when he was VP for. Uh, Eisenhower. He, uh, Eisenhower had the bad heart, so Nixon was very involved in that. And if Nixon would have won 1960, uh, there's a good chance that we would have invaded Cuba at that point because like, it, JFK was less willing to do the overt invasion that Nixon, like the CIA was big. I mean, look, that's one way to approach these things, I think. That's kind of how I look at it. I don't want to give Trump another eight years in power. I think the Democrats do equally malicious things, I think maybe a little bit more uh, um, uh, competent, which is scary too. But I think breaking up the continuity is probably um, a good bet. And just to clarify, I was actually saying that I almost fear that, I almost fear Biden is less hawkish as president than the Dems would push Trump to be. Okay, Because I think the Dems would, would drop the Russia stuff more. I hope, and I think maybe I'm wrong. I'm giving them too much credit or too little, whichever. I mean, it's it's interesting to try to balance out how which which ways they're evil. But um, so so uh, the idea is like is like if, since Trump would have people yelling at him that he was uh, yes. he was Putin's puppet, right? He might do something really extreme to prove them wrong, whereas yeah. Biden would have less reason to do that, right? Yeah. I think Luke. Uh, that, oh, sorry, Dushan, oh. go for it. Uh, no, I'm just going to add that I think the way I think about it is that. Trump is more likely to get us into some sort of serious um, foreign policy um, escalation inadvertently, while Biden's more likely to do it deliberately. Um, I think that in the in the possibility when you're talking about the possibility of uh, nuclear conflict um, or or you know North Korea or other actors, um, or the way that Trump unraveled the Iran deal and the way he's gone about um, sort of playing chicken uh, with other actors in the region. Those are the sorts of things that um, he, I doesn't obviously think beyond uh, bravado and doesn't really understand the destabilizing geopolitical effects these things have and that maybe he thinks he wins things because the person doesn't fight back immediately but he doesn't, isn't capable of thinking about the longer term um, sort of uh, lack of uh, stability caused by these things. And when I, you know, I did a bit of reporting on, on the situation uh, with, with uh, North Korea and every expert I spoke to said that the reason, the, the thing that made them the least afraid of conflict uh, breaking out on a nuclear level was because they trusted North Korea's government to act more rationally speaking through an international relations lens than they expected the Trump administration. But what happens if uh, you know Kim Jong-un feels particularly cornered or there's a, there's a change in leadership or there's a misreading of some kind of you know, maneuver, you know, a, a missile being fired off and someone takes preemptive action, something messy happens. Um, I haven't followed who Biden is considering uh, uh, on, on, on the foreign policy front very closely, so I'm not going to comment on a specific sense, but insofar as there's a lot of indications that it's supposed to be conti- uh, contiguous with, uh, uh, you know, the outlook of Obama, uh, you know, that's not promising from the perspective of, of interventionism in the Middle East. And I have to confess also overall, Foreign affairs is a place where I have a lot more pessimism for the power of the left than domestic issues because it's oh. easier for the left, I think, 
uh, ally with um, with liberals and moderates on issues like healthcare, where there's tangible payoffs uh, for the domestic public. But I think a lot of people have trouble empathizing with people on the receiving end of American power in these countries. And there's not very easy ways to shake people out of dehumanizing people after they've been socialized to think of, um, you know, imperial power as beneficent. And so that's something that I view as like a longer term goal, uh, goal for the left. It's not to say you should give up on it. I'm just more pessimistic about it. Sure. Luke? Well, I, uh, I think I largely agree with what's been said about foreign policy. That is, I mean, it's hard to imagine a scenario where Trump wins and really has any, con like he's not going to control the house unless, you know, there's some kind of absolute electoral apocalypse. Uh, Dems are probably going to flip the Senate. It sounds like, um, I think, I, I agree that foreign policy is probably where he could do the most damage. Uh, I think an interesting question is, uh, which you know, hopefully is a purely hypothetical and, and theoretical one, but I mean, what would a second Trump turn even be, particularly with regard to domestic policy? It strikes me that you know, uh, Trump is the Trump administration is running on inertia at this point. I have no idea what its second term would be beyond. Uh, you know, the very kind of obvious malice uh, that you get from any Republican administration. People have brought up the National Labor Relations Board. You know, there's judicial appointments, attacks on public sector unions, probably attacks on reproductive rights as well. Um, COVID you know, co yeah, uh, you know, mishandling, mishandling of COVID. But in terms of a uh, in terms of an agenda that is distinctive from a regular Republican agenda, uh, you know, the Trump administration, uh, I mean, Trump. Trump ran as some kind of a populist, uh, you know, big with many asterisks attached to that. He ran uh, certainly, you know, a a heterodox type of Republican campaign, um, which is what enabled him to win the Republican nomination and eventually the presidency as well. Uh, and I mean, that's just been entirely absent. What is the Trump agenda beyond? I mean, uh, you know, he ran as a quote-unquote populist and probably. You know his biggest domestic policy achievement was doing the tax cut that Paul Ryan, you know, always wanted. Uh, um, and I so yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an administration running on inertia at this point. That's not to say that um, you know a second Trump term wouldn't be a, a total disaster, um, but I'm not sure that it would yield many surprises, at least on the domestic front. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the point about it being uh, it being a regular Republican administration, I think I think is absolutely right. I mean, like most obviously uh, something when um, uh, the uh, well, actually the new episode of uh, of Useful Idiots I was just listening to uh, in uh, in the car, uh, it was um, uh, it was pointed out I think by Sagar and Jetty, who who I think was maybe disappointed by this. He would have liked it if it weren't the case, but uh, that yeah. uh, they they gave up on, on the border wall like immediately, right? Like that, that was like, you know, first year, first round of budget negotiations. All right, never mind, right? Uh, and, um, and everything horrible that the Trump has done uh, with the possible exception of, I think the degree of mishandling COVID, yeah. uh, I, I think that a regular Republican actually might have just gotten it together a little bit more at a technocratic level. It's bad for business if, you know, the morgues can't handle all the corpses. Uh, but uh, with, with that exception, and actually even foreign policy, I think that some of the wild mood swings uh, on, on issues like North Korea, I, th I think might be, you know, might be a Trump special. Uh, that, 
that, you know, he's going to bring us closer to the brink of war with North Korea than we've been since the 1950s and then decide that he's going to make this big peace initiative and then get bored with it and whatever. I mean, like that might be more distinctive and as people suggested, maybe more dangerous uh, than, than something a regular Republican could do. But I think overall, uh, he has probably mostly governed the way that Romney would have uh, or, or John McCain would have, uh, that, uh, which in fact, I think is probably part of the problem is that we're so used to having the discussion being between people saying that um, Trump is a fascist posing a unique threat to democracy uh, and people saying that, oh, he's fine, maybe even, you know, uh, maybe even he's better in some ways than, you know, the Democrats would have been, uh, when maybe the best case you can make is actually, no, it's just like, it's just much better strategically to have the Democratic machine controlling the executive branch and the Republican machine controlling the executive branch, because Trump is, for example, on, on the Supreme Court and, and the lower courts, for that matter, he's going to appoint all the same awful Federalist Society ghouls that any Republican would appoint, and they're going to do all of the damaging, horrible things that those people would do, and it almost doesn't matter as long as he's a Republican who the president getting that list and acting on that list uh, is. But uh, but I, I did, I guess, maybe one transition in, in the few minutes we had left uh, to the, the Biden win scenario. Uh, and, and in particular, I, I guess I have to say, Zishan, that the part of, of your case about what might be better under Biden that I, that I was, I'm unfortunately the most skeptical about maybe was the part about the, the, uh, the Supreme Court, because if, if I understood what you were saying correctly, it sounded like you think that Biden actually might do some sort of court expansion, or, or if not, I don't quite understand the Supreme Court part of the argument. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's been sort of mixed signals on that front. And um, I will also admit that I haven't kept up with the latest uh, reporting, I think, in the last few days, I want to keep up with on that front. But I mean, m you know, my understand, at the very least, just just generic, uh, sort of Democrat perspective would be that they would at least be on 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 the federal courts in general, Supreme Court, anytime they can, that they will appoint, uh, you know, more liberal justices. And then on the question of whether or not Biden will actually pack the court, I think that there have been, uh, I think at certain points the campaign was indicating that it was a possibility because they were declining to answer it. And then um, the latest that I'm familiar with is was the idea of uh, setting up a panel to sort of study possible responses. And uh, I, my understanding, and I invite anyone to, um, to, to sort of intervene and add more details to this, is uh, that, 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 dampen the possibility of a full-fledged uh, attempt at, at, at court packing. So I, I'm not necessarily optimistic on that front, um, but uh, again, given the binary um, and, and what your options are, mm -hmm. and if there is even a theoretical chance of it happening, it obviously could only happen under, uh, under a Biden presidency. And I think everyone, we've all touched on this in various ways or another, but everyone would agree a lot of this is also just a function of like, what kind of pressure that the movement left can place on the Democratic Party uh, on, on, on key fronts uh, when it comes to this sort of process. And it's an open question um, because the left looks very different uh, right now than it did during an Obama presidency uh, for a couple of reasons. I think also Obama was also able to convince some people who were fairly progressive or fairly for the left that he could legitimately be progressive. I don't count myself among those people. I always thought that he was going to be exactly what he was um and 
So, but I do know that there were some people who were kind of like, well, this could be a, a special guy. And, and I think people projected a lot of things onto him for a variety of reasons. Um, I don't think people have those illusions under, under Biden and the left is more salient, more organized and actually has um, real voices that have, you know, an actual megaphone and legislative uh, impact in, in both chambers. Uh, but uh, I still, um, at the end of the day, I do think Unfortunately, right in the left power still is pretty, uh, it's, it's not huge, it's not, and it's not highly organized. The weakness of organized labor is, is always something that's, that's um, not promising. Um, but I don't know, you know, you never know how events are gonna unfold. Something like a George Floyd situation under a Biden presidency could be massive. Uh, but yeah, sorry, I just kind of rambled there, but. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. Uh... But I, I, I guess I guess I have a hard time imagining Biden actually doing the um, the expansion. I mean, my guess was always that when he when he and Harris wouldn't answer the question, it was because like they didn't get anything out of answering it in either direction. That if they said uh, if they said yes, that would alienate the suburban moderate Republicans that are obsessed with courting and also set them up for looking bad when they didn't do it. Uh, and if they said no, which I suspect is the honest answer, uh, then they would be, um, that would really demoralize the base at the time they most need the base because uh, you would be admitting that the Supreme Court is just gone for this foreseeable future. So saying that we're going to set up some sort of like panel or commission to study it honestly strikes me as the most Democrat thing that you could possibly yeah. say, you know, that, uh, that you know, that we're, we're, we're firmly committed to like studying it and issuing a report in two years. But does anybody have a more? Oh, yeah. That's like that? what they tried to, that, that's what they tried to do when Brent Welder um, tried to make the DNC adopt something that would ban corporate lobbyists from serving on the platform committee or something. And they were like, we're going to look into it. Like, really? <laughs> we're going to look into whether or not like there's maybe a conflict of interest. Like, I think the main reason for optimism would be the Democrats' different approach to like civilization level uh, preservation events like climate change and COVID. Like, I don't think the Democrats are going to do nearly enough on climate change. Um, but I think it completely, like, if, if Trump wins, that's another thing we think, like, oh, well, the climate discussion is like, we're, it's all just mitigation at that point. And maybe we should be there at this point anyway. But, well, so, so I, I'm curious about this because because maybe maybe I just don't know en enough about this, and, and maybe maybe some of this like incremental climate stuff would do more than yeah. it's my impression that it would do. But um, if like okay, I mean obviously I think saying that on climate that uh, you know the Trump administration will do worse than nothing, and Biden administration might do something. You know I understand that. I guess I'm not sure how much good the something uh, does uh, that they like, like it's, it's very, you know, cause like when it, when it comes to some, like, like just like crudely, if you're talking about like raising the minimum wage or something and like there was like a horrible centrist Democrat who was willing to raise it like by 25 cents and, uh, and then uh, they weren't going to raise it to what would be a living wage, but you think, okay, well, you know, that adds up to enough that, you know, on a per year basis, mm -hmm. it might make some difference in some people's lives. So fair enough. We have a reason to care about that. It's less obvious to me that the, the, the incremental climate stuff would have some sort of impact, right? Like, like, the, like the Paris Accords, right? Obviously, that was a very bad symbolism for Trump to get out of that. But also, my understanding is that the negotiation process for those accords was basically like every country kind of said 
what they you know decided right. they were willing to do and it was stapled together and it was called an accord uh and and given the fact that it is like you said such a civilizational threat like i'm, I'm not sure how excited we should be about that am i missing something well, well then maybe we move to mitigation and which who do you want in charge of the executive branch when like the worst effects of climate change start yeah. i mean right <laughs> like or maybe it uh, buys us a few years of yeah. survival that's it i mean yeah Pretty dark. And, and, and certainly like one of the climate change things that would be scariest, and I guess this does go to Matt's mitigation argument, um, well, actually, you know, is just like that if you have larger, if you have portions of, of the planet that become uninhabitable, uh, and it wouldn't have to be very much, it wouldn't have to be a very big proportion to, to really trigger this, uh, then you could have refugee crises on a level that we've never seen before. And combining that with aggressively anti-immigrant, you know, right-wing governments gets pretty apocalyptic pretty quickly. So you could argue that itself was a reason to want to, to want to disempower Trump and people like Trump. Yeah. I, uh, I just want to reiterate a point I made earlier, uh, not specifically in relation to climate change, but I think uh, in relation to the likely scenario of a Biden victory, which is, uh, I think, uh, I think we can fully expect this to be a, you know, a, a fairly conservative administration uh, in terms of its kind of core reflexes, in terms of who gets appoint, uh, appointed. That's not just because of Biden himself. Uh, you know, it's also because of uh, people that he's, if you look at who he's surrounded himself with in the primary and since the primary, I mean, a lot of these are folks from the Clinton era who are kind of third way ideologues. Um, and I think uh, you know, a, a further, uh, I don't know, something that will, will almost certainly add to that conservative character is uh, who, who, it's who is likely to, uh, as it were, be, get the credit for a Biden victory. Uh, it's going to be, um, uh, you know, it's going to be the, the people who advocated for this kind of, uh, you know, Hillary 2.0 affluent white suburban strategy. The Democrats may, in fact, hemorrhage votes from people of color. They may lose them to Trump. Biden may, in fact, get fewer votes. There are some signs he'll get fewer votes uh, from non-white voters than, than Hillary Clinton did. Um, but because there's a, a chance that Biden's victory, uh, you know, both in the popular vote and possibly even the Electoral College is going to be quite considerable, um, that is going to be understood as a vindication of the kind of, if not the supreme vindication, of the kind of strategy uh, Democrats, you know, have, have uh you know, been trying to make the norm since Bill Clinton and largely had kind of have made the norm. Um, and, you know, which was kind of refined by Rahm Emanuel in the 2000s. Um, uh, it turns out that you can win, uh, not just without the actual left, but without even kind of the small p progressive soft left uh, that is, I think, you know, a major part of the democratic base. Uh, you don't even need the base. In fact, you can kind of, you know, you can as good as demonize uh, them. You can, you know, you can uh, you can distance yourself from them at the height of the George Floyd pro uh, protests, uh, or you know, just after them. You can run these kind of pretty pretty revanchist, you know, law and order ads, and you can win anyway. And so, imagine how the, Bi Joe Biden and the people around Joe Biden will process, uh, you know, an outcome that sees them winning over 300 electoral votes. Um, you know, they're, they're not, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be uh, an administration that plays to all of Biden's worst instincts and the worst instincts of kind of centrist liberalism as we've, as we've known it uh, for the past, you know, 20 or 30 years. And I think the reason I'm saying this all sounds very, you know, 
bleak and downbeat. But I think it's important, you know, that if Biden is president from day one, there's an understanding not just on the socialist left, but among, you know, uh, progressive Democrats and, and people who are, you know, maybe more inclined to think positively of the Democratic Party than, than uh, all of us. Um, people just need to understand what the character of this, uh, this administration is, right? Under Obama, there was, I think, uh, a very popular and, and um, from, from the point of view of the administration, a very you know, serviceable narrative that Obama's doing everything he can, right? What right. you're seeing, what you see from Democrats is always the maximum that they're able to extract. And when they make retreats, uh, or when they simply just don't do things at all, even when they promise to do it and you know control all three levels of government, et cetera, it's just because they they couldn't, right? And so an important uh, a, an important countermeasure against that kind of uh, narrative is to be clear on uh, be clear on the kind of president Biden is almost certainly going to be, you know, right from the get go, and to kind of base uh, considerations and calculus uh, from there, and and not be kind of uh, wooed by whatever. Um, uh, token gestures, you know, appointments mm -hmm. or otherwise Biden makes towards the left. Yeah, I really, I don't know how we can do that. I mean, but I feel like we need to somehow like advertise that, be like this, he only won because Trump is so horrible. And um, also uh, when he doesn't, he's going to say he can't do things um, and he can. Yeah. Force him to. And and that's another point. Uh, I, I know I just, I just talked, but another point that I think is, is worth making is if Biden wins, uh, it is it is not because uh, of democratic strategic genius. Uh, you know, people like myself, uh, probably many of you, uh, Jacobin Magazine, Current Affairs, other places that you know I'm associated with have argued for over a year that Joe Biden is a very weak general election candidate. Uh, I stand by all of the arguments yeah. that I made, and I would make them again. Uh, but this is not a regular election. Right. Uh, this is a pandemic election. And uh, um, Harry Enten, the mainstream uh, pollster who you know does commentary for CNN, has actually written a really persuasive case for this. Uh, there is a direct correlation between places that have high, uh, you know, high rates of death from COVID and places where Trump is doing worse, uh, you know, in battleground states, especially where he's doing worse than before. COVID, unlike, you know, unlike in any other election, uh, you know, is the top issue um, among voters. It has been since the spring. Uh, there was, a, we were headed for a very different election in January. Trump was, uh, he had higher numbers in terms of his economic approval rating than any president in decades. Uh, Moody's analytics, there was, uh, you know, uh, they told, I think it was NBC, that if these if these economic conditions hold, if there's, you know, the growth that's being forecasted, et cetera, Trump's going to be reelected. Um, and I, I think that if this was not a pandemic election, we would be having, you know, the character of this conversation we've been having would be very different. We'd be looking at a much tighter race and and quite possibly one where uh, the Democrats were, were going to lose. Um, because uh, I think basically before the pandemic hit, Trump was on course for re-election. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, granted, I, I have a... Um... I have a conflict of interest here because I was writing stuff for Jacobin in January saying that uh, saying that Biden would be a terrible general election candidate. So, uh, so I obviously want, you know, um, you know, like, um, you know, so I'm obviously inclined to, to think that I, you know, that I was retroactively right. Yeah. <laughs> right about that. But, uh, but I think it's also objectively true that, uh, that in like, if you just looked at this as, Trump the personality and Biden the personality. Uh, what uh, what Trump can get people excited about, you know, in his base. What Biden can get people excited about in his base. Um, you know what 
was going on with the economy, you know, before uh, before COVID. Uh, I don't think that it's impossible that Biden would have won, but it would have been a much tougher race for him. I, I, I mean, I, I actually don't think I don't, I don't see how that's like debatable. really, you know, really debatable at this point. I'm yeah. thinking how much. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Katie. No, no, no. I'm just 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 going to say briefly. I mean, it's amazing to think about how much more salient the Hunter Biden stuff probably would have been had it not been uh, for COVID. I mean, so I I wrote critically. I don't know if I would agree that Biden is was the worst general election candidate out of everyone in the primary. I wouldn't really agree with that necessarily. But the I co did. competition's pretty Herculean given some yeah, of the exactly. people that were running. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so yeah, I, I think Delaney I, would have been worse. Yeah. <laughs> tennis ball. Um, yeah. No, I wrote so, but I did write critically of Biden uh, many times uh, during the primaries and point out his weaknesses. But the one major thing was this thing about Hunter Biden's scenario. And it's amazing that even amidst a complete meltdown in terms of public health and the economy and story after story about Trump's corruption and, 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 and politicization of the Justice Department and what happened to some of Black Lives Matter, even then the Hunter Biden stuff is like still part of our discourse. I mean, granted more in right-wing media, but it's there. And obviously we know with the, you know, uh, the Greenwald stuff, like maybe in a slightly different world, that story comes out and makes a bigger splash than you expect. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's wild to think how much coronavirus has really shifted uh, things dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, that seems, that seems totally right. Um, I mean, I, I think in a, in a normal boring election, uh, when you, you had, you had one of the candidates, um, you know, the combination of, you know, of, of picture, you know, the dick pics and the pictures with the crack pipe and, and, and the, the stuff that does seem to at least raise questions about, about corruption, even, even by uh, Joe Biden. Um, obviously it's obviously, I think it's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm third way on this. I, I think that it's uh, that, it's both true that Republicans have wildly exaggerated what it shows, but also that like it, you know, I think the, there's nothing to see here. Narrative is kind of ridiculous too, you know, like there are things in there that, that do, you know, that do legitimately look really bad. The vice president's son, uh, you know, just happened to have a $50,000 a month no-show job right. at an oil company in the Ukraine. Right. He right. seemingly had no expertise to... No. I mean, it, I makes, mean, it, it makes his, his um, being appointed to the board of Amtrak look totally on the up and up. <laughs> And totally, like, that's so logical. And he is an expert. He rides on Amtrak. He rides on the Amtrak. Yeah. Which is actually well, what he, the senator I, said. When I'm sure he drives a car. So maybe he is, he is, he oh, yeah, can energy, sit yeah. on an right. oil company. Right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, what, what, what no one talked about is one of the weird things in exchanges is like Hunter Biden's like, you got to run for me. He's like, I will. Don't worry about that now or something. Then he's like, the next email is like, I got to talk to you about running. That's weird too, but uh, yeah. I mean, it's so obvious that the media is so covered for Biden and so vilified uh, Sanders during the primary that it is impossible that like they intervened on so many levels that had they not, it would have been such a different story. And things like the Hunter Biden thing would have been like previewed as, as, as potentially problematic, but we lucked out because of, I mean. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no, quite, no question. And actually also, I, I think that uh, that if there had been the sort of uh, media closing ranks around Biden to try to um, to tr to try to squelch uh, the the New York Post story, 
I mean, I think it already backfired a little bit yeah, like right now yeah. in our timeline, you know, because uh, people are certainly talking about it more than they probably would have without that. Yeah. But I think it I think that's what people are talking about often. Yeah, right. They're probably, they're they're actually talking about that more than they're talking about the original thing. Yeah, uh, right. And, I think and, it and saved. I, I think it didn't get out as much as it would have. Like, I still think it was a net positive for Biden because I think that among like the Twitter and like leftists and journalists, it has become a hot topic because we saw what happened on Twitter, especially with like the censorship. But I think it also just didn't get out as much as it would have had they not run such strong interference for Biden. Yeah, and and and. Yeah, that could be right, but I, I also think that if if they had tried to do the same thing uh, in a less dramatic uh, election yeah. cycle, then that would be like strictly all anybody was talking about, you know, between uh, between now and Tuesday. Yeah. Um, but um, of course, I've just been uh, joined by the great David Griscom, uh, who's uh, who's about to after we end the panel do uh, Outlaws and Revolutionaries. But uh, while he uh, he's here while uh, while everybody else uh, is uh, is here. Just uh, do do you want to um, uh, do do you want to weigh in and uh, and and make any uh, make any predictions? Do you think uh, do you think there's any chance that Biden could actually win Texas? Oh, dude! I mean, I've been getting that question all week. Um, I mean, you know, Texas is the classic. You know, all progressives want to win Texas, obviously, for bragging rights. I think it's gonna be really close, honestly. And the the real like the smart play on Texas, the smart analysis on Texas is that the voter turnout means that people are going to be showing up big time, which means that a lot of these progressive races like Mike Siegel um, in Texas 10 look very, very promising. And what is most important is that the Democrats might be able to take uh, the legislature, um, which would be huge for the national picture going forward because Texas is one of the most, yeah, yeah, Texas is one of the most gerrymandered states and all that stuff is coming up. And that's a huge opportunity that could really shift things you know, down the line. Coming for you, Dan Crenshaw. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> uh, if 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 people haven't haven't seen it, uh, I would just um, I would just really recommend. Um, maybe we'll slip in a clip of a clip of this. Uh, they uh, a few months ago, several months ago, Dan Crenshaw went on the Joe Rogan Experience, uh, and uh, you know Rogan doesn't push back against guests very often. Uh, you know, cause, cause he usually just kind of wants to hang out and let them say their piece. But, uh, when he does, it can be hilarious. Yeah. And this was definitely one of those times, uh, because Crenshaw was trying to run these arguments like Medicare for all means that doctors are enslaved because you have a right to their services. And, and Rogan was kind of doing the responses that any normal human being would make to that argument. <laughs> and it's amazing. But uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, thank you, Katie, Matt, uh, Zishan, Luke. Uh, this, this was really good. Um, really hope to have all of you back soon. Cheers. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so Hi, much. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the entire, you know, we, we could argue that we could, we could even debate the merits of, of Medicare on its face. Um, but Medicare but for entire... all would be available for everybody. Now, if Medicare right. for, for all was available for everybody, what you're saying is it would essentially, you, you would fix prices on, on everything in terms of medical treatments, and, and that would be right. a problem because of what? Well, so, okay, so when, once, you fi once you fix prices, um, well, imagine this. Um, imagine if 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 the government said that your podcast could could only take a hundred dollars per ad, and that was just the price fix from now on, what incentive would you have to really 
expand your audience? What expensive one incentive would you have to keep going or expand the business? You wouldn't be able to. It's similar under any industry. It, once you once you fix that price, um, you're going to reduce the supply that goes into. Can I stop it. you so, on that analogy? Yeah. Here's the problem with that. The difference is if there would there would have to be a reason why they would say that I could only get a hundred dollars per ad. The reason why you would say that things shouldn't cost too much for someone who's injured or sick is because we want to take care of each other as a community. And the idea is that we healthcare do. should be something look, we, we provide so many services to people that we, we we are united, right? We're un- the United States of America. We're supposed to be a gigantic community. And one of the, the great things that we could do for each other is to make sure that if someone's sick or injured and something's wrong, that we can take care of that. We would like everybody to do their share, and we would like everybody to chip in so that this is possible. But there's a big difference between that and fixing the price on an ad. Yeah. Well, no, but not economically there's no difference. Morally there is, and, and I agree with you morally. We do have the, we have the same goal of getting everybody adequate care. Right, but, but from I an think economic that's... standpoint. But from an economic standpoint, my, my, my point still stands, and, and you can apply that to any industry. I see what but you're saying, but I, I think we're looking at medical care as a basic human right instead of just an economic issue. All right. All right. How you doing, brother? I'm pretty good, man. Uh, I'm watching a Texas-Oklahoma State, which is a big game, and it just went to halftime, so we have perfect timing. Uh, Texas is down a little bit, but uh, I think they'll be able to come back. Nice. Uh, yeah, I just uh, actually. Did you watch the Michigan Michigan State game? I was just gonna bring that up. Uh, I, I'm actually uh, this. This is almost uh, like having a season that start started yeah. so pathetically that MSU lost to Rutgers. Uh, <laughs> you know, my former employer, uh, like which is which 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 is to the Big Ten. Uh, pretty much what like the Washington generals are to exhibition basketball (laughs) 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 after losing to Rutgers that, uh, that, that uh, MSU somehow uh, beat, uh, beat U of M uh, is almost enough to make me reconsider my atheism. It's amazing. (laughs) It was a beautiful, it was a really fun game to watch. I caught a bit of it. Yeah. There's, there's actually back in 2015. um, I had just gotten back from, um, uh, my wife Jennifer and I had just gotten back from uh, from South Korea, uh, where we've been living for uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, I, I had a postdoc at a university there, and uh, neither of us had a academic job for the fall, so we ended up going back to Michigan, you know, where I'm from. And uh, and I was just, she was still working on her dissertation, and I was just substitute teaching for a semester, which uh, I wouldn't particularly recommend, uh, but. Uh, uh, was 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 depressing in many ways, but the amazing thing about it is that I got to um, back in those glorious pre-COVID days, I got to go out to uh, sports bars and watch Michigan State mm-hmm. games uh, with crowds of people who actually cared uh, about Michigan State. You know, since, since I was in thing. Lansing, <laughs> and uh, and there was uh, this there was this Michigan Michigan State game then um, that uh, in 2015 where uh, the Spartans won in like literally the last 20 seconds in this just bizarre fluky way. Uh, And it was like being in a sports bar in Lansing to watch that was like Times Square on V-Day in 1945, you know, just in terms of the level of jubilation that was going on. (laughs) And I'm almost glad that I was back substitute teaching that semester because I got to experience that. (laughs) That's some beautiful stuff, man. I mean, 
Those you, you honestly like. I know some of our audience isn't aren't big football fans, but there's nothing better than you know being in the right place at those big moments. You really never forget them. Absolutely. Oh, so uh, on uh, on much uh, you know much less happy news. Uh, we uh, we lost uh, Billy Joe Shaver. Uh, yeah, this man. Week. Um, um, gonna start. Gonna pour one out for him, and as our our tradition. Uh, if anyone wants to show you guys, you can't see with the green screen, but uh, got a really nice uh, Rowan's Creek uh, bourbon uh, for my nice. birthday last week. So I'm going to pour a little bit of that. Yeah, man, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Billy Joe Shaver, um, Ben. Have you heard of his name before? Yeah, no, I mean, I'd, I'd heard of him, you know, wasn't uh, wasn't a huge fan or anything. Uh, but yeah, uh, but I, I'd heard of him. I like some of those songs. Well, the thing is with Billy Joe uh, Shaver is like you've heard his music even if you haven't heard his name right um because he was the heart and soul and the mind and the writer of outlaw country music and it's just like it, I, i'm not an expert in other genres well enough to to know mm-hmm. this dynamic but I, I think it might be very unique to country music especially country music of the outlaw country generation was that you really did have you know you had the willies and the whalens and all these people who are at the forefront but this really rich cast of characters who are writing all their songs they're playing with their bands and, you know, also, you know, went on and did their own music as well, of course. Um, but it's an interesting part of country music is how much of a project it was, how communal it was. But yeah, I mean, we're to start with Billy, uh, Joe Shaver, you know, interesting things about him, you know, tragic. Right? This was a, a, a really, he was a, a true person in the sense of like, he lit, lived a really difficult life. Uh, he didn't come from nothing. He came from Corsicana, Texas. Uh, when he was young, uh, as, a, as a young man, he lost two fingers on his right hand uh, working at a lumber mill. Um, he he uh, joined the Navy, but he got thrown out of the Navy for punching an officer in the face. Uh, <laughs> which honestly, that might give you a good setup for the kind of person uh, that he was, you know, and, you know, another kind of tragedy, never knew his father, things like that. You know, Billy, Billy Joe Shaver was just, he was a, he was just a real guy, a real man. Uh, Matthew Sittman, um, you know, who we had on recently has a really beautiful piece in Commonweal Magazine that I can't suggest enough that really captures a large part of his essence. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, in the story, uh, you know, Matthew shares a pretty kind moment with him where he was able to see him in Virginia and basically like, ran into him after the show and tried to reach his hand. And then he felt really awkward because he reached for the hand that was missing the fingers. Um, but, you know, Billy Joe Shaver doesn't miss a beat. And just like, you know, and, and you know, Matthew just says something like, you know, you were great out there. And he's like, thank you so much. It really meant a lot. And, you know, Matthew, again, read the piece. It's really, it's a really sweet uh, remembrance of him. You know, they shared a real human person to person moment. This is somebody meeting, you know, one of his heroes, just like very much there um, with everyone else. I'm going to tell that story to juxtapose it to another story, uh, which I think just tells you the full spectrum of the guy, good and bad, for better, for worse. Uh, Otis Gibbs, who has a really great YouTube channel. Uh, he's a country music singer as well. He's a DJ, um, but he has a really great YouTube channel where he just sort of re- recalls stories, hanging out towns, Ben Zan, all these people that he spent time with. Um, but he was recalling his experience with Billy Joe Shaver, where he had tried to interview him twice. And both times, basically, he set up the, you know, he set up the interview. Billy Joe Shaver arrives. He has the microphones, everything set up. And both times, Billy Joe Shaver just refuses to be interviewed. He's like, it ain't happening today and just leaves, right? <laughs> um, which is, you know, most journalists would obviously be very mad. But Otis, Otis uh, you know, said that he feels really lucky. <laughs> 
um, to have had that kind of real interaction with somebody. And that was just like, if anything, I just want people to understand about Billy Joe Shaver. He was a real human being through and through for good and bad. Uh, one of his, one of my personal favorite songs of his uh, is a song that's very famous called Live Forever. Um, just a couple lines from it. You know, when this old, when this old, when this old world has blown us under and all the stars fall from the sky, remember someone really loves you. We'll live forever, you and I. Nice. You know, and that's a really beautiful song. And uh, there's some recordings that he does of it with his son. And I highly suggest listening to the older recording, uh, the uh, the more recent recordings when he's an older man, because the you know the the weight and the age of his voice actually really brings that to life. Um, but well, I wanted that's good. That's that's like. Um... A line I've I've always really liked uh, is uh, the uh, poet and novelist Charles Bukowski uh, is uh, asked once uh, what his advice was for uh, young writers, and uh, mm -hmm. he said, "Get old." <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's definitely the the truth with with Billy Joe Shaver. Um, all right, let me tell you this story because I I love this story so much, and I'll post this on Twitter afterwards because you can listen to the interview um, where he he tells this story. It's so good. So for people who aren't familiar. Um, oh man, I wonder, hold on. So I don't want to, I might just need to switch my video so you can, uh, damn. Oh, actually you can see this, right? Okay. Yeah, I can see it. Yep. It keeps coming in and out. Shit. Okay. It's coming in and out, but I can see it. William, Waylon Jennings. Waylon Jennings, Honky Tonk Heroes, right? Yeah. Um, and right there is Billy Joe Shaver. Um, sorry, it's so awkward, but uh, right there yeah, is Billy Joe Shaver. And, um, he, he wrote that album. Pretty much, pretty much all the songs on there are from that album. And that's one of my favorite Waylon Jennings albums of all time. Um, that has great songs like Honky Tonk Heroes, uh, Old Five and Dimers Like Me, which is a great uh, Billy Joe Shaver song. Ain't No God in Mexico, which is personally one of my favorite songs. Just a hilarious, beautiful, real like table thumping song. Um, but let me tell you the story as to how that happened because it is just so outlaw country. Um, so 1972 in Dripping Springs, Texas, um, where Willie Nelson uh, has his 4th of July picnic, which is a wonderful event if you're ever able to go. Hopefully we'll be able to go and hang out with Willie for many more years to come. But anyways, the first uh, Willie Nelson 4th of July picnic, uh, Billy Joe Shaver's playing there and everybody who's anybody in country music is there. And Billy Joe Shaver is there, uh, who, by the way, should be noted, is really good friends with Willie Nelson, uh, even before he got big. Um, so anyways, he's there, he plays a few songs. And in the crowd of uh, Billy Joe Shaver's um, uh, set was a very inebriated, loaded Waylon Jennings. And Waylon basically is loving the music and says something to the effect of like, I need to record some of your songs. Like, you know, I want to include you, you know, in an album sometime. Um, but again, Waylon Jennings is drunk and Waylon Jennings was a very notorious drunk. So of course nothing comes about it because it probably is true that Waylon Jennings has no recollection of offering <laughs> all of this uh, to Billy Joe Shaver. So at that point, Billy Joe Shaver, I think he had some kind of record situation, but you know, it was not happy. I think he was preparing to leave Nashville uh, to move back to Texas. Anyways, he gets a friend of his who is a DJ who is helping uh, Waylon do some recordings and finds out where Waylon Jennings is doing these recordings and shows up uninvited, you know, late at night, 11 p.m., midnight or something like that, you know, to basically confront Waylon Jennings about his promise. So he shows up uninvited and he's just sort of standing off in the corner, uninvited, minding his own business, according to his uh, retelling of it. 
And, you know, eventually uh, his friend comes back up to him who had let him into the recording studio with this folded up hundred dollar bill. Right. And he says, Waylon wants you to have this and would like you to leave, please. <laughs> you know, just basically be like, here's some money, get out of here, Haas. Um, so he says, uh, his response to that was, <laughs> he says, no, why don't you fold that up and give it back to Waylon Jennings and tell it, tell him to shove it up his ass and twist it. <laughs> Um, so then a couple minutes later, Waylon Jennings, uh, shows up, uh, to confront him and, uh, with a couple big old strong guys and Waylon comes back and says, what do you want, Haas? And Billy says, you better listen to these songs or I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, it, it basically Waylon says, okay, I'll listen to one song. And if I don't like this song, get the hell out of my studio. And, uh, Billy Joe Shaver plays Ain't No God in Mexico. Um, he gets a thumbs up from that, then plays Honky Tonk Heroes and a couple of his songs. And then basically, you know, plays through his whole set. And then when it's like, all right, we got to record this. Um, so, that, <laughs> so that's how this incredible album, um, Honky Tonk Heroes, uh, you know, came to be, which I just feel like is such a beautiful country music story, but also just a story of the kind of guy that uh, um, Billy Joe <laughs> Shaver uh, was. You know, and the guy had been been through a lot. He played music with his son, um, who was an incredible guitarist. People made comparisons of him to uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. And tragically, in, in 2000, uh, he died of a heroin overdose. And I'm just going to read a little bit from an interview that Shaver did with Rolling Stone about that. Um, because uh, pretty famously, his, his son died and he played a concert that night uh, still. And Willie Nelson put it together because he knew that he like he would be so self-destructive if he wasn't able to be out there playing music. Uh, so this is Billy Joe Shaver saying, Willie put a band together. My band just went nuts. They all f uh, flacked out and went off crying and stuff. But Willie called me up and said, Billy, you got to get back on the horse. And Shaver says, I'm an old cowboy. I know what he's talking about. So I got up there. And this is just another um, aspect of just one, how beautiful it would be to have a friend like Willie Nelson, but just the pain he was going through. Um, this is him too, talking about that nicest. I knew where the drugs came from, that drug dealer. I had, I would have shot him up and killed him instead of calling the police, he said. Uh, but Willie talked me out of it. He said, you're best just leaving it alone. And I did, I just left it alone, but you don't ever forget something like that. You know, so somebody who dealt with a lot of hardship growing up and then, you know, didn't escape that in his adult life, drug, alcohol problems, and it shows up in his music, not in a kind of celebratory way, but in a really honest and beautiful, uh, beautiful way. And, you know, you and I, uh, you know, I feel like have similar feelings about the divine, but, you know, he does have a, a really strong uh, connection to, you know, to Jesus and to God. And it became something that was really important to him. And I think in a really beautiful way that like I really identify with and, yeah. and get a lot from uh, one of a favorite song of his is like, I'm just an old uh, chunk of coal, which, you know, one of the lines goes, I'm just an old chunk of coal, but I'm going to be a diamond someday. I'm going to grow. I'm going to grow and glow till I'm so perfect. Um, I'm going to put a smile on everybody's face. And, you know, if people are interested in his music, you know, all of his songs are incredible. You know, a lot of them, the better versions, honestly, are the Willie and Waylon and, you know, all the people who covered and, you know, sang his songs. Um, but he wrote one of the great country love songs called You Asked Me To, which is a beautiful song. Waylon sings that. Old Five and Dimers Like Me is a beautiful song, um, which is on Honky Tonk Heroes and a few other people have, have covered as well. His versions are great. 
uh, Sweet Mama, which is just a great kind of Texas country music jam. You'll hear it and you'll be like, God, this is Texas music. That's a tribute to his mother. Um, another great song, uh, Wacko from Waco. <laughs> and let me just read you a couple of lines from it because it's so good. Uh, I don't start fights, I finish fights. That's the way I'll always be. I'm a wacko from Waco. You best not mess with me. Joe Jamal said, I was like a flying buttermilk trapped in a Waco bottle. I was bound to get killed. And for people who aren't familiar with who Joe Jamal is, he's one of the famous like kind of Texas lawyers who was always getting people out of trouble. Uh, you know, so just a really fun, beautiful, um, you know, outlaw kind of songs. Um, but you know, that song, uh, Old Chunk of Coal, uh, came out of a really beautiful story. And again, you know, I'm not particularly a spiritual person, but I really do find a lot of beauty in those moments in people's lives. And he wrote that after um, spending time on this, uh, you know, th basically this range in uh, Tennessee called Harperford River, um, where he went up this like very treacherous pathway up to this cliff with the intention of jumping off and, you know, ending his life. And he gets up to the top of this ridge and he sees this rock that to him appears to be like an altar, like at a church. Um, and he had, you know, what he claims to be this very prophetic, uh, you know, vision of Jesus Christ. Um, and then he, you know, sort of switched around his life. And you can find, uh, you know, his homage to those moments in his life throughout his music. It's the best kind of, I guess, like Christian country music, if you're, if you were even to label it as that, you know, this kind of idea of like dealing with the, the depth and then trying to find something on the other side. I find it be really beautiful. You don't have to be, you know, somebody who needs uh, religion to find it to be, you know, an incredible incredible story but man i'll tell you just like otherworldly guy definitely check out all of his music um you really won't be sorry and he was behind it all i mean he was really the heart and soul of uh, this style of music that i love so much thank you so much david that was great of course man i'll talk to you soon soon bye all right uh that was as always the great david griscom for outlaws and revolutionaries before that uh, we heard from uh, Greg Belvedere about uh, his, uh, his current affairs piece about worker cooperatives. You should check that out. Uh, and uh, we heard some thoughts about the election from uh, Zashim Alim, uh, Katie Halper, Matt Leck, and uh, Luke Savage. Uh, was a co-worker of mine at Jacobin. Uh, and next week, uh, by the time we do this next time, we will, I hope, uh, know who won the election. Um, you know, it, it's possible that we will still not know that if we are in some sort of hellscape, uh, protracted Bush versus Gore on steroids scenario, which is entirely possible. Uh, but I am going to have on the great Matt Chrisman to talk about whatever the hell will have happened uh, by this time next week. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. Meanwhile, uh, please do um, like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, please do rate and review us wherever you get podcast, uh, your podcasts. I know that you've probably heard that from people on shows so often that it's like background noise at this point, but those things really do make a difference. I've been really happy with how the show, uh, how quickly things have grown since, uh, since we started it. Uh, it's been really amazing to see. It's it's been humbling to see. Uh, if you uh, if you are in a position to uh, become a patron, please do consider doing that. That's patreon.com/slash/ben Burgess. 
I uh, really want to uh, get to the point where everybody who is involved uh, behind the scenes in helping make the show work can be paid a living wage for, for doing so. Uh, ultimately, I'd like to be able to make a living wage just off doing this so I can, I can teach a lot less and do a lot more of this. So uh, if, if you can, uh, for the, the monthly um, cost of a milkshake in the 50s Nostalgia Diner into uh, Pulp Fiction, uh, you can uh, get early access to every single episode uh, and you also get um, regularly scheduled uh, Discord office hours, group voice chats uh, with me and with other patrons. Uh, the one last week uh, was, uh, was a lot of fun, uh, covered a lot of topics, political and otherwise. Uh, we're also going to be starting to do more uh, bonus episodes coming up. We've already done a couple of them, but we're going to start doing more and probably give early access, you know, much earlier access to those to patrons, make those, you know, for patrons initially, and then unlock them uh, a week or so down the line. Uh, so if you, if you can't afford to do that, please do. Again, the solidarity to, to help make this happen. It's, it's really very much appreciated. Uh, but even if you can't, uh, please like and subscribe on YouTube. Please rate and review. Again, those things do make a difference. Really do appreciate it. Um, whatever happens uh, with, the, uh, with the election on, uh, on Tuesday, uh, I think that you know, we are in a period of defeat. Always talk about this here. I know it's a downer, but I think you have to start from a place of being, uh, of being real about this. Um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn uh, was the leader of the Labor Party a few months ago. He's just been suspended uh, from, uh, from the Labor Party uh, for transparently absurd reasons. Uh, Bernie Sanders is not the nominee. Uh, Joe Biden is the nominee. So even if uh, the election goes the way that we hope it will, a um, corrupt neoliberal warmonger is going to be president. That's the grand prize at the, uh, at the end of that. Um, you know, Glenn Greenwald, who I know a lot of people have a lot of different feelings about, I personally have great admiration for. I subscribed to his new Substack venture as soon as it was started, uh, has, uh, has, has acrimoniously parted ways with the publication that he co-founded. And some of that has, seems to have to do with the fact that so many people uh, right now, even in that kind of progressive sphere, don't want to be seen as doing anything to undermine Biden. Uh, be, you know, like publishing material days before the election that might be embarrassing to Biden uh, because things are so bleak right now that even somebody who is justly hated by the left uh, like Biden, uh, there, there is this kind of closing ranks behind out of desperation. Um, we talked a lot today about whether that's the right move, how we should think about it, uh, whether you can, um, you know, whether you can give uh, Democrats your vote, especially in swing states, without giving them, as Matt Leck uh, wisely said, uh, your your voice, you know, without without losing that critical voice, without losing absolute honesty about who and what people like Biden are. Uh, but uh, but regardless, I think that uh, that we are in uh, a, a dismal period, as uh, the sports commentators say. Uh, for example, about my beloved Detroit Red Wings, uh, the left uh, is in a rebuilding period, uh, and that's that's bad. That's dismal. Um, but uh, I don't think that means that we have to uh, to give up or that we can't be uh, optimistic in uh, in the long haul. 
And I hope uh, that, that shows like this in some small way can contribute to, uh, to helping us get our act together and at the very least uh, giving some solace and some sense of perspective on our way to getting our act together. And I really appreciate all of you who are along for the ride, who are helping grow the show, uh, joining the Patreon, subscribing to the YouTube, all of those things. It obviously uh, makes a huge difference to me and I really appreciate that. Uh, but uh, but I, I also appreciate it on uh, on that larger level that uh, you know that that even though uh, things are not good right now, uh, you know we we do we are willing to show some of that optimism of the will uh, that Gramsci talked about, and I hope if nothing else that this show can promote that. So I'm going to leave it there for this week. Thank you guys so much uh, for watching. I really appreciate all of it. I'll see you next week. I'll uh, be doing some live streams between now and then. Might be doing a bonus episode between now and then. But certainly I will see you next week. Left is best. <laughs>